Welcome to Food Talk. I'm your producer, Stephen Ray Morris, and on May 10th, Food Tank visited Capitol Hill for the first of our bi-monthly conversations about food and agriculture with a variety of experts, advocates, activists, and policymakers. In an often polarized political climate, we set out to find a way to break down the silos between the health and agricultural fields so that legislators and the public can better understand the role that fresh, healthy food plays in individual and community health. And a huge thank you goes out to our partners at the George Washington University Graduate School of Political Management and Planet Forward Program, the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy at Tufts University, and the NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development for this amazing beautiful event. And a special thanks to the Food is Medicine Working Group, Facebook's Community Leadership Program, and policymakers like Representative Roger Marshall, Representative James P. McGovern, Representative Jackie Wilarski, and Representative Shelley Pinegree, without whom these events would not be possible. Enjoy the show. It's now my pleasure to introduce uh, your next moderator, uh, Frank Sesno. He's a former CNN correspondent, anchor and Washington bureau chief, and the director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. He'll be introducing the next panel. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank you, Danny. Congressman, um, great panel. I'd like to invite up, please, Congressman Shelley uh, Pingree, Gita Sethi, um, and um, Norbert Wilson. Let me introduce our, our panel to you, um, because I think that's actually good to know where people are coming from. Uh, Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, a Democrat from the great state of Maine, which I know quite well and love, First District, which includes Portland and Augusta. Uh, she has served uh, uh, prior to coming here in the uh, Maryland Senate, and if I'm not mistaken, the first Democratic woman uh, elected uh, to the U.S. House of Representatives from Maine, is that correct? That's true. And when was that? What year was that? It's been 10 years. Been 10 years. Um, so look forward to hearing uh, from, from you, but also you have some farm roots, right? Most importantly, I'm from Minnesota, um, so I'm, you know, yeah, sure you betcha, I'm definitely a, a Minnesota dairy farming background, but really I've spent most of my life in Maine, and I started out in the 1970s as a hippie back to the landers, so I've been an organic farmer most of my adult you life. You were organics before organics were cool. That, that's kind of cool. Gita <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sethi is the global lead uh, food systems with the World Bank. What does the global lead for food systems at the World Bank do? Uh, ring alarm bells, <laughs> uh, urgency several. of action, yeah. <laughs> and reflect ambition. And you're an economist, right, as I understand it, specializing in sort of big picture issues that affect uh, developing countries and food. Great. And Norbert Wilson is from Tufts University. Uh, he's a professor of food policy at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. And you deal with issues regarding access and that sort of thing. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, so at the Friedman School, some of my research touches on food security and uh, the ability to access food and also thinking about food waste and the implications of food waste for consumers. Congresswoman, um, I'd like to start with you. We heard. Um, Congressman McGovern here a few minutes ago speaking about SNAP and some of the other programs around the country, but you worked very uh, hard on the Farm Bill, and uh, one of your areas of interest in the Farm Bill um, were, was in connecting food and health directly. What were your priorities, and what do you think from that Farm Bill is the most important component of that connection? Um, well, thank you for that, and um, Representative McGovern has been the co-chair of the Hunger Caucus for a long time and really is the um, 
most critical champion on SNAP benefits and making sure that people have adequate funding and also that you can have access to healthy foods. He m mentioned the double bucks program um, so that if you take your SNAP benefit card to a farmer's market or certain kinds of grocery stores, you can get double the amount if you're buying fresh produce. And um, we've also recently formed this bipartisan food is medicine caucus and I'm one of the um, people involved in that. And we uh, inserted a provision in the farm bill, uh, the produce prescription. We've learned a lot of these um, great ideas from um, Gus Schumacher is no longer with us, um, but some of the pilot work that they had done, but basically this now was enacted in the farm bill and um, you can, it, it allows, um, it really allows like basically a medical practitioner to say uh, a healthy diet would improve your health conditions and um, I'm going to write you a script for that and you can use it to access healthy foods because I think we all understand this issue of it's not always affordable. You can, you can buy a lot more unhealthy food for your meager dollar than um, healthy food. So this is um, just about to start implementation and um, you know I, I think something that we're going to try to keep expanding. What are realistic uh, expectations of the impact of something like that? Um, well, that's why we have schools like Tufts who are doing incredible work and a lot of other great universities are you researching the buck this. Here? Is that yeah, <laughs> I am kind of, yeah. But I mean, let's face it, we, we have to change our diet. And um, a, a pilot program is sometimes the only way in Congress that you can get um, started out there, that people learn more about it in their communities. Um, you kind of spread the word throughout Congress because somebody will hear about it in their state of Arkansas or California or anywhere else. Um, ideally, there will be some components of Medicare and Medicaid um, that would expand to next. And and we could have a much broader reach. But really just changing our um, understanding of um, which, you know, in a way we all kind of in, intrinsically know. I mean, you start to pick up something unhealthy and you say, oh, I shouldn't eat this. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you live in California or Oklahoma, you say, I, I know that this isn't good for me. And you know because you've heard you shouldn't eat too much salt, you shouldn't eat too much fat or all these other things. So, but a lot of times it's what's accessible, it's what we um, have inappropriately um, incentivized in the way the farm bill is written. And so changing some of these big picture things will happen as we start to have more metrics and proof, I think, that um, we should do it. And we certainly should do it in those programs that we fund um, with federal dollars. Kita, I'd like to pick up on something the Congresswoman just said, which is, you know, this, these are the things we've incentivized. And you and I were talking about this before we got together for this panel, the disconnect between what the world needs and knows and what it incentivizes. And I know you look at that. What's your assessment of that when you look at it from a global context? Uh, thank you. Great question. And it's been a real pr privilege to be here. So thank you for, for, for hosting this. You're absolutely right. I think uh, there is a crisis and almost all what all the speakers have talked about, we're also seeing globally. The food systems that we have currently are either creating a bankrupt planet or unhealthy people, number one. If you just look at, let's look at two points, look at the production side and the consumption side. The production is, is, causing, uh, is causing the GAGs, okay? And, we are, and it's ca causing a bankrupt planet. On the consumption side, today, for the first time in human history, food is the biggest culprit of issues around health, much more than uh, unsafe sex, uh, tobacco, alcohol, and drug abuse. One in every two persons today globally on this planet is either hungry or elements of malnutrition. 
And if one looks at the public policy supporting the food system, the subsidies, almost more than half a trillion dollars is going into uh, um, supporting different kinds of programs effectively around cereals. We are still stuck in time in the 21st century thinking about caloric sufficiency. We where haven't the, where, moved into nutrition sufficiency. So we should move from caloric to nutrition That's sufficiency. That's right. Those subsidies that you talk about are coming from national governments, NGOs, where? Uh, national governments. And around global, global number. And where would you say there is any progress in changing that model? If you, if you look at individual countries, policies, governments? A few things. First is there is a hue and cry from educated consumers. They want more. There is, science has been screaming and yelling to the point that it's deafening at the moment in terms of evidence coming out, including around research. One more factoid, which is incredibly interesting, that 95% of our research on food systems is supporting cereals, which is the cause of the problem. Less than 5% is going towards groups of foods we are asking the world to eat, legumes, vegetables, fruits and nuts. So hope, it's not hopeless. Uh, I think there is, a shift has begun except not with the urgency and ambition the world needs given all kinds of crises we are facing. But the subsidy incentive pro system should be shifted. Is there a place that, or, or an example you can cite where that has been done, accomplished, piloted? There have been some pilots going on. We don't know what the impact is. For example, a lot of support going into fertilizer subsidies towards um, staples, towards cereals, is been shifting in some of the developing world. Nor so, sorry, Nor Norbert Wilson, uh, you look into a lot of this um, in, in, your, in your research and certainly in your work. Um, should we be talking more about food um, equity as, as a driver of this conversation? Yes, of course. Um, Food equity is this idea that we all should have access to good, safe, nutritious foods. And there are lots of programs out there that are trying to actually move that forward. So for example, uh, Representative Pingree was referring to the uh, Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program. And this is a wonderful thing that has shown up in the Farm Bill. I'm really appreciative of the work that you all have done to do that, to make sure that uh, individuals who are participating in the SNAP program here in the U.S. are able to use some of their SNAP dollars to buy fruits and vegetables to actually get more money back to buy better foods. And there have been pilots in Massachusetts, uh, the Healthy Incentive Program, uh, the HIP program, where we actually saw my colleague Park Wilde did some of that research and actually showed that it really does lead to greater consumption or at least greater purchases of fruits and vegetables and to the point that it looks like it could have real benefits long term. And so this notion of equity is one that reflects the need of lower income individuals. So this is a really important place. 
to, to consider, but I would also argue there are issues around equity when we also go along lines, not just on income, but also on racial um, and ethnic differences across this country. Uh, I'm originally from uh, rural Georgia, um, even though I live in Massachusetts, I'm Southern. <laughs> and it is a, a really important place to understand the access and the variety of foods that are available and the choices that people are making and creating a space where people are able to make those choices um, more readily. In addition to working at a university, you have worked in food banks. Yes. Um, what did you learn, experience, see there that you think could drive this conversation, and in particular, the policy parts of this conversation sure. that will drive sort of national decisions and choices. Sure, and it was spoken in the earlier session, everybody wants to eat well. I mean, I, I want us to be very clear about this. No one goes in thinking, oh man, I really want to eat just poorly and I want this to contribute to poor health. And so one of the things I realized and learned by talking to pantry clients, um, there was a deep desire to do well, but Folks were really struggling to make ends meet. And then getting beyond, going beyond just that, just how do you manage life? I mean, I know we're all busy. We really are. But this idea of how do you manage taking care of your kids, working more than one job, and dealing with all the stresses there, and then trying to figure out how do I make this budget work so that I can feed my family? I want you all to try that. It's not easy. So can we create policies that can actually help this? So there have been efforts and talk about how do we change SNAP, for example, if we're going to talk specifically about SNAP, making it look a little bit more like the WIC program. And, and I think there's some real challenges there. I don't want to argue that we need to go down that path per se, but there have been thoughts of do we put restrictions, do we put more incentives, and the, the, the Healthy Incentive Program is an example of that. Those things can play together to actually create that. But I think we need to have a real conversation around the food system, and I know some other speakers talked about that. And it's not just about do we make a program work differently. It's about changing our whole food system to benefit all individuals, regardless of the income or where they live. Where is there bipartisan support? Where are you and the other party working across the aisle to address some of these issues? Or is this another place where we are hopelessly divided? Well, we end up with these fights around the Farm Bill generally on SNAP benefits. But the truth is, the other side always concedes and we win anyway. No, I shouldn't say that always happens. But, but I think because people have a general understanding, you know, as Representative McGovern said, it's about 40 a meal. It's, it's already a, a really constrained program and we tend to um, have a basic belief that it's important to everybody. But I would say generally, on a lot of agricultural issues, they're not um, partisan divides. They're about what region of the country we represent. Do you have corn and cotton in your district or wheat, or are you worried about trying to save this particular subsidy for an agricultural interest that you represent? Or are you hearing a lot from consumers who are increasingly dividing this debate and saying, you know, we want more access to healthy food and we want it to be more affordable. So, rural, urban? Um, little bit, I think, but I would say generally. I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, there's a big movement now in getting healthier food in, in kids' school lunches, more school gardens, more cooking back into the cafeteria, and I would say that's being driven by parents across the country. I don't think rural, I mean, I live in a very, very rural state, and I would say rural parents worry just as much about what their kids are going to so eat as So how does that translate else. here when these things are being driven by parents and people? Uh, um, I think, I mean, I, I will say that, um, 
you know, Congress is often the last to get the news um, about what's going on, but um, it's been mentioned on the panel earlier, there's a, there's a big movement going with consumers, and so then the companies themselves are saying, like, we have to market healthier products. People want access to more fruits and vegetables. And they, you know, um, I think you mentioned, we, you know, everybody um, has a busy life, whether you're working three shifts or you're just trying to, you know, travel for your job. You go to the airport today, there's a lot more access to a little, you know, container of fruit or vegetables, and I, it's, it's being driven by the marketplace. So you're asking me about what's happening on the Hill, and I think sometimes it's just a matter of getting the good ideas to our colleagues and some of these creative ideas, um, you know, into a pilot program or something else. But for instance, the Food is Medicine Caucus, it's uh, bipartisan co-chairs. You know, there's, there's somebody who understands these issues and it's more of, is it your first issue and how do we make sure it's always part of the debate? Um, um, Gita, just one other element and then I want to open up to a couple questions to, for everybody and questions from the, from the room. Um, some of the food guidelines that have been expressed which are connected to healthier outcomes are also connected, have also been connected to sustainable agriculture and even climate change. I'm thinking of beef and other things among them. How does that climate connection connect with, if it does, the food and health discussion? Um, another great question, completely. Um, let me talk something about uh, the broken food system. One of the biggest symptoms of a broken food system is food loss and waste. And the GHG, just from food loss and waste, is if it were a country, it would be the third highest emitter. And I think when we are talking about fixing a broken system, there is a bullet. And the bullet is, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a bullet. Some estimates suggest that the three billion more mouths we have to feed in the next two decades, if we address food loss and waste, which is doable, it's everyone's problem everywhere. Um, it itself will take care of 25% of the needs. And that 20, has- 25% of the needs. Yes. And that has huge, already a, a broken food system that is unsustainable, the biggest driver of environmental degradation, land, water, GAG. Addressing any aspect of this, already we, are, we have gains coming through. And then research has to really move up, innovation, private sector, etc. One of the things we do with this Planet Forward project that um, Dan Reed, who's with us here today, runs at GW, is we look for innovations. Where, where are the next innovations? You talk about innovation. Where is there innovation in policy and food health that either you're working on or people in this room should be aware of? Where's the, what, what, are you, what excites you, uh, politics aside, that you think could, could um, provide some answer or some guidance here? Well, I actually think the intersection of climate change and, and good health is an important one, and you made a very good point. It's about the healthy planet as well as healthy people. There's some really interesting work going on across the country in food waste. Uh, every one of those statistics is real, and we have a bipartisan food recovery caucus as well. Um, and looking at, you know, biodigester systems, which may be used on, you know, um, farms to collect manure, which is one way to get rid of some of the methane, as well as collecting food waste from the community. We have one of those going 
happening in the state of Maine. Um, there's just some really interesting work on, on the whole system, and it's forcing us to look at that. And also, in the area of climate change, um, the whole question you brought up, um, the food system, and, you know, the question around, you know, can we continue to eat meat, and is that detrimental to the climate? Well, on the other hand, you've got regenerative agriculture, where permanent pasture and grazing beef, and we're now understanding that grass-fed beef probably has better health outcomes for you as well. So, you know, maybe all those things come together. Farmers get payments for carbon sequestration in their soil. It makes the system work better for them. They're willing to tackle um, different techniques than they had used in the past. We get away from CAFOs and some of the other, you know, practices. And, and a lot of this comes together. And I think climate change gives it all a new burst of energy. Um, you know, the fact that uh, on the partisan side that the Democrats are back in control of the House and we're having an enormous number of hearings now on climate change. Um, you know, even if we don't pass every brilliant bill that we think up, we have gotten the dialogue going again. And more than anything else, the American public is really hungry for good information. And by having that information, and one of the things that I've been working on a lot with my colleagues is trying to get more hearings related to, you know, the positive aspects of what we can do in agriculture that are good for health, reduce food waste, but also really good for the planet. What, what, like what, I'll come to you. Norbert in just a minute, but when you say positive aspects, more hearings. Like well, better understand, we, we're um, better understanding of how we sequester carbon in the soil, how we measure that. You know, right now, if you're going to mitigate climate change, um, you know, you want to assuage your guilt for riding on an airplane, you plant a tree. That's kind of what we always think. Well, we don't want to plant trees over all the great farmland in America. I have a lot of trees planted around my house. Right <laughs> well, and thank you for doing that. But the fact is, um, you know, as we develop better techniques for measuring how much carbon is sequestered in the soil, we are... Um, going to be able to value that and, and value the practices. Organic farming, you know, is a way of doing that, but no-till and um, cover crops and a lot of techniques that are already supported at the uh, Department of Agriculture. We just need to have better measurements so that farmers can be part of that mitigation process. Robert, innovations you're looking at? Inspired in part because of some of the work going on um, that Representative Pingree has been a part of looking at how do we change date labels. Uh, and what are the most effective ways of actually helping U.S. consumers. But this is not just a U.S. problem. We're seeing this around the world where people are not clear what those labels mean and how they should respond to them. There are a number of industries or um, small uh, companies that are growing quite quickly who are finding innovative ways of changing food waste challenges into real opportunities to actually move food from being in the bin to actual people. So, um, and there are new technologies that are coming out all the time to actually address this problem. So it's, it's not just going to be a, a solution that's going to be resolved by government, which I appreciate the work of government, but it's also about what innovators are going to do in this space. Let me offer a, a question from the floor with uh, Several hands. Let's start in the front and then we'll move one or two to the back. Great, thank you. Um, I'm John Coonrod with The Hunger Project. A lot of our focus internationally is on health and food is in prenatal care. And I know marginalized communities in this country are not getting good access to prenatal care and they're probably not getting good nutrition advice in the access that they have. So what can be done policy-wise to improve prenatal care, prenatal nutrition? Who wants to take that? Just beyond the WIC program, I know there are some issues now with WIC that um, people have been doing studies and, and there's not enough access to WIC right now, which I think um, makes it critically important um, to figure out better ways to uh, promote the WIC program, make sure that everybody who's eligible for it, and there's also been some talk, it's not prenatal, but um, of expanding one more year um, so that 
kids who don't make it to kindergarten, you know, don't lose that year of nutrition. But I, I do think, you know, since we have a, a basically well-respected, good program, the idea that there would ever be suppression of information so that, it, you know, the promotion isn't happening is a travesty and something that I'm, you know, concerned about making sure we, we, don't, we don't do. And I know in my home state there are a lot of legislators working on how to get more information on after an eight year of an administration that didn't want to promote it. So that's a big deal. No, anything you'd like to add to that? No. Okay, uh, I think there was a question in the back. Why don't we go to the back of the room and we'll come over here. Hi, I'm Kat Vang. I'm a Bill Emerson Hunger Fellow. Um, a lot of the exciting innovations are happening at the community level and local food system scale, yet these innovations and projects and organizations receive minimal funding. So my question to you is, um, how can we support these grassroots initiatives that are building community power, that are um, teaching civic engagement and democratic participation, and are still attaining community food security for their immediate communities. How can we support these initiatives through policies or funding? That's a great question. Congresswoman? No, it's a good question. And um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, I guess one way is to make sure that um, everybody in, in any community doing something innovative is aware of all the potential programs at the USDA. Sometimes there are funding streams that, you know, nobody knows enough about, but there are actually available. I know in, um, you know, Maine, a lot of small projects take advantage of them, small farmers take advantage of them. But I think it's also a good question, you know, perhaps we should have some, uh, you know, so often the, the loan programs and the subsidies and the grants go to big projects, big provable projects, and we're, we're glad they're out there, but maybe there should be kind of a microloan idea for the creativity and innovation that we need to have right now, and, and that would be worth thinking about. And I also think it's important to, for the foundation world, the, those who are involved in foundations, to find innovative ways of reaching out to those kind of community organizations. And as someone who's worked at a university and also at a land-grant university in Alabama, it is also important to partner with local universities and other institutions. We're looking for opportunities to collaborate with people who are trying to find innovative solutions. And I think the partnership can be really beneficial. Have you got funding for those partnerships? That's something we're always looking for. <laughs> so, okay, last question right here. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Mr. Sesno. By the way, I just wanted to th thank you for some of your participation in various panels at Jack Morton Auditorium at George Washington University. My name's Todd Wiggins of Meet Me DC. So my question is an opportunity for you to sort of pitch what's going on at GW because at your institution, I'm sure that there, this topic of food and health comes up often in academia in general as well. But can you uh, specifically cite some of the initiatives that uh, being fostered at that institution, which might be beneficial to this conversation. Sure, and I'll be brief with that because I, I know we're, we're pushing our, our limit here. Um, we have a number of, of programs, obviously. Uh, we've made it available to students, starting with what we're teaching first. Uh, about uh, seven, eight years ago, we started a, a sustainability minor, and a lot of the students, with nearly 300 of them now, were pursuing that, and food is of great interest there. Um, we do have a, we have had a food institute, which has looked uh, and taught everything from the sustainability of food to issues of food waste and food deserts, the policy side, to include uh, Jose Andres, the 
celebrity chef who came and did an amazing class that more than 200 students uh, enrolled in to learn everything about how food is made and consumed to how critical a role it plays in our culture and in our socialization, which the other panel was talking about. Our project at Planet Forward, we encourage students all across the country to tell stories about innovations on their campuses and in their communities. And many, many, many of them go right to issues of food. Um, we'd like to say that uh, we have well less than 2% of our population now directly involved in agriculture, but 100% of our population has opinions about the food they eat, uh, whether it's any good, whether it's too expensive, whether it's organic, GMO, what, what have you. And we see that expressed in young people. That's why these comments about the marketplace driving a lot of these changes, changes we absolutely see that playing out in our students and what, what young people are, are after. So I thank you very much for the question and for the opportunity to do a little, a little line about what we're doing at GW. If you wanted to see some of those student stories, by the way, and we've got literally hundreds of them. If you go to planetforward.org, you, you can see that. Um, we're at five past one. One more question, she says. So Danny says one more question. Let's go right here to uh, in the middle of the room and, and we'll be done. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Gabby. I'm from Capital Area Food Bank. And my question is, um, we've been talking about, both panels have been talking about sustainability, about, um, about the culture around our food system and how our food system has changed over time. And I was thinking about how the food system has also changed kind of from smaller farms to like much bigger farms. And um, my question is, I guess, what are we doing or what are your ideas of things that we could do to um, not only protect the small farms that still exist, but to also um, provide incentives for those who want to do smaller scale farming. And um, it just gives the community an opportunity to connect a little bit closer with the food that they're getting. That's a great question. Why don't we let everybody take a shot at that? Because I think each sure. brings a perspective. Um, well, I come from the state of Maine, and we've had some amazing growth in the last couple of decades in uh, in the number of people getting into farming, the farms under cultivation, the organic marketplace has really opened up opportunities for a lot of farmers, and we have a tremendous number of small to medium-sized farms. Um, and so w we try to help them take advantage of the USDA programs that are out there, some of them um, that help to extend the season, you know, hoop houses or SARE grants where they can do some research on the farm or use renewable energy. And actually there's quite a bit out there. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of having the information there and our state has a really good networking that goes on to train apprenticeship farmers and journey person farmers. And we try to expand as much of that as we can, um, you know, through the farm bill and in other ways to make sure it happens in other states because I think it's critically important. Interestingly in Maine, we have double the number of women going into farming um, as there are now nationally, and I think women make excellent farmers. I'm a small farmer myself. Um, and I also think that, again, driven by consumers, people have this incredible interest now in buying more locally. Um, people are even willing to pay a premium price, um, you know, based on polling, if they know the farmer or if they feel it's helping the rural economy where they live. Um, and also just the, the trend towards us, you know, sourcing, understanding the source of your food. So, again, I think consumers are really interested in this, and there are opportunities at the USDA, but we are always pushing for more and looking for more ways that states can be partners in this. Agreed. At least in the U.S., this idea of innovation in the Farm Bill, where we're moving away from some of our traditional commodity programs to um, risk management programs that may open up opportunities for small farmers. Um, at my institution, we do have a small farms program where we're helping to train. Uh, uh, Jennifer Harshley is working on this, where they're training individuals to become farmers, um, and particular immigrants, um, but not just those individuals. And it's about those kinds of innovations, but also recognizing that communities can make these choices and help promote these activities. Gita, you get 
the last word looking over the entire planet. Uh, my institution, this is something we worry about day and night because poverty reduction is one of the big dreams we have. It's our passion and commitment. And one of the biggest constraints to smallholder farming is access to finance, uh, give or take the rest. And that's, that's something that we, are, we focus on and it's not easy because of titling and lack of so many other issues around land and so on and so forth. But it's, it's definitely a big focus for us. But I want to make a last point, and I have the advantage, because I was very inspired by what you said and what I've heard about food and food and agriculture overall being a bipartisan issue. There is a global, uh, there is a vacuum of global leadership on this agenda. And uh, even though lots has been happening around the world, it's very boutique style. It's not scalable. It's not happening with the ambition and, and urgency. The G7 presidency is with the US for 2020. And if it's a, it is a bipartisan issue, I mean, no one can object to better food systems and healthier people, uh, healthier children. Uh, I wish US would take a bigger leadership role and really change this, this landscape. Thank you very much. So, thank you all very much. I, I would just, I'm going to turn it back over to Danny, but before I do, uh, my friend Rick Leach, who heads World Food Program, Food, Food Program US, says hunger is a solvable problem. Um, these issues that you've highlighted here are solvable problems. And I just want to thank you and on behalf of the audience for all the work you're doing to try to solve it. So thanks to the panel. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.